0: All of that is beyond going down to your local corner shop realtor and buying a property. So property in itself is all about having a right set of plans to play the game. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show the cash flow blueprint. I'm going to give you my blueprint on how to end up positive cash flow from Australian real estate. The idea of using real estate to generate income in your world. I'm going to show you how I've done it. I'm going to teach you some principles which are Ultimately, very important to understand when it comes to generating income from residential real estate. Hey, welcome aboard. If it's your first time tuning into the show, play the program in double speed. Get your life back. And of course, all the episodes I've done are lessons on real estate. So feel free to go back. Uh, Travel in time. Go back and listen to past podcasts. But Thank you for tuning in and of course, welcome back all you regular urban property investors. I hope you are doing well. I'm well. There's Gopniks in the street. I've got a big zit coming out of my chin. Uh, That's really my world at the moment, zits and Gopniks. But I tell you what, what is nice to know is that uh, I've created a bit of a nest egg for myself in this world and uh, I would like other people to do the same. So today we're going to go through the cash flow blueprint. I'm going to touch on the affordability crisis, the history of positive cash flow, how to go and buy a negatively geared property and end up with a positive cash flow property And of course, I'm going to cover off some theories around real estate and give you some cash flow factors, which I think you should look for when it comes to Australian real estate to not only get capital growth, but also to get rental growth. So let's do it. Let's work this out. And of course, I teach seven property plans inside of real estate. I don't think real estate's just about buying a property. I think it's a lot deeper than that. You're going to need a capital growth plan. You're going to need a plan to formulate rental capital growth. You're going to need a plan around minimizing your tax, reducing your debt. Uh, You're going to need plans around finance You're going to need plans around income in retirement and wealth accumulation and acceleration. All of that is beyond going down to your local corner shop, realtor, and buying a property. So property in itself is all about having a right set of plans to play the game. And it's like going and playing golf, I think, real estate. If you head down to the local golf course and uh, you've only got two or three clubs to play an uh, 18-hole golf course, you're going to run into trouble. And I think a lot of property investors run into trouble because they simply just don't have enough Uh, golf clubs in the tool bag, so to speak, to play the entire game. So today, the blueprint, we're going to focus in on rental growth and obviously how to increase your cash flow using the right types of properties. We don't want to end up later in life with a handful of pennies in our back pocket. We want a fistful of dollars. I think really when it comes to property investment, the idea of investing for capital growth is the number one rule but if you can also invest for capital growth and get growing cash flow it makes investing just so much better and can put you in a place where income wise you're not retiring on beans and rice or going around in a caravan to lake weirdo no you're having a decent holiday you're doing things you want to do in this world you're spending half a year in europe Uh, gallivanting around Croatia, not hanging out having uh, cups of tea in a weird little Gopnik town because uh, that's the only place that accepts old weird people in caravans. So let's do this. Obviously you're not going to save yourself wealthy so let's rule that out. No one can put enough money aside per week over a 15 or 20 year period to end up living off the cash flow of that saving. So we need the power of leverage. And of course real estate is Australia's best leveraged vehicle. We can go and borrow 90% of a property's value, 80% of a property's value, buy a property and then if we work out how to get that property debt free, we're going to start to see the benefits of living off that extra income. Just put the property to work, let it do its thing, and you're going to get where you need to go. Now, really, inside of most economic conversations, there's usually a passive income target. I don't know if you know your passive income target, but everything to do with targets and goals is simply maths. And really, for a lot of people... Uh, The idea of the 5% rule is really the maths that a lot of people are aiming for. And uh, if we were to just use gross returns, if you can imagine you wanted $100,000 passive income in retirement, that's going to equate to a 5% return or around $2 million worth of real estate. So $100,000 at 5% gross return is roughly about $2 million worth of real estate. So you can imagine for a lot of property investors, they're either going to have to buy one uh, property, which is is spitting out $100,000 in cash flow they're going to have to buy a couple of properties. They might divide them through buying in super, couple in their own name, maybe one in a company trust, maybe even look to deploy their own family home. There are ways to get there. But ultimately, if we look at rule 20, rule 20 is just the idea that we've got an income we want We need to times that by 20. So if our passive income target is $100,000, times it by 20, which is $2 million, which spits out a 5% return. So that's great. That's a good uh, bare-ass minimum in my opinion. But what if you could get a 10% return? What if we could double that equation? Well, really, today's podcast is about doubling the equation. And I think, why not? Why are we aiming so low? Why do we want a 5% gross return? That's not high enough. Let's go get a 10% return. So obviously, if we did a 10% return uh, in the equation, our $100,000 ultimately becomes $200,000. $200,000 is a good amount of money. That's $4,000 a week. That's, that's not Lake Weirdo in a strange caravan um, drinking uh, basically, uh, you know, black tea. That's cocktails down on the Creation uh, coastline. So let's aim for that because I think that is a big goal. And if we give ourselves enough time, there's no reason why we can't get there. And of course, today, because people can't borrow as much money, what if we just bought less properties but got double the financial outcome? So, for example, what if we could stretch to a million dollars worth of real estate at a 5% gross return uh, in our retirement that's 50K a year, but at a 10% gross return in our retirement, that's 100K a year. So let's go for it. Obviously, we're going to end up in a net position. There's costs to come out to run properties and all that kind of fun stuff. But if we can end up debt-free uh, and our real estate is throwing out 10% plus cash flow, that's a good place to be. And if we set ourselves a target, $2 million real estate, 10% cash flow I think you're going to live a pretty good life. It's certainly a target I've long been aiming for and I've surpassed it personally. And I know that's going to lead to a life later, which is perfectly fine. Uh, It's going to deal with the inflation costs of life in general. And uh, I'm not going to be scratching around and uh, I'm not going to be that guy at the party who basically doesn't want to contribute to the bill because he didn't eat as much as everyone else. No one wants to be that guy. You don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy at the party that says, you know what, guys, this one's on me. So let's do it. When it comes to cash flow, there is a bit of a blueprint. And I think we should start the conversation as well around the concept that there is an affordability crisis here in Australia. Now, I've mentioned this before Uh, The idea of accelerating our cash flow is uh, a big driver of property success. Right now, we're going through a rental crisis, an absolute rental boom, and we're starting to see really the idea of improved values on rents for many, many properties. And of course, for government, this nicks them in the head uh, because government really loves the concept here in Australia of fire economics, bringing more people, more migrants to the country to keep stimulating the economy. Uh, So really, we have a huge, huge problem when it comes to demand. There's just way too much demand out there. Uh, Problem of supplying properties, we're just not producing enough, our planning system is dysfunctional, and uh, really what can be produced, you know, for the most part, people can't afford anyway. So there's no stock, there's too many people, and of course, this creates a problem of housing which becomes expensive, and for a lot of people, they have simply given up the dream of basically being homeowners here in Australia. And really, Australia has a middle class who own $1 million, $2 million properties, sometimes even $3 million properties, which is quite bananas to the rest of the world. But it's the way it works here. We've got this kind of system where new migrants come and get added. uh, And of course, uh, we're not building enough properties. And so, when it comes to the idea of inequality, certainly there is a tenant group at the bottom of the market, which really does struggle to keep up with the cost of living. They've got limited access to capital to become homeowners themselves, really uh, classified today as the working poor. And of course, um, when it comes to the idea of, you know, certain people in society just doing it so tough, there is really one in five people today have less than $1,000 in the bank who are of working age. So you can imagine there is a really social housing issue here in Australia. Now, I really wanted to tap this on the head because in the news today, you're going to see politicians, you're going to see newspaper articles, you're going to see clickbait articles around really the idea that rents need to slow down And uh, really, for a lot of what that, uh, I guess, conversation is designed to talk to is really the people at the bottom of the social ecosystem. They are doing it tough. Today, there's a 10-year wait to get into, for example, housing commission or social housing. There's some 400,000 people on the waiting list. So, again, you are going to see basically ideas of – Uh, you know, you know, slowing down leasing, maybe renewing rents every two years, not 12 months. My advice with that kind of uh, concept is don't pay too much attention to it. Don't let it derail you because we can end up positive cash flow. And I'm going to show you how. And of course, if we look at the supply figures of real estate coming through the funnel, I mean, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse over the next three years because there is no stock. You know, if you look at the actual immigration statistics for next year and the year after this, well over a million people coming into the country. And then if you look at the supply levels of stock coming through the system, it's nothing. And so you're going to have this huge amount of people jumping into the rental market and pushing up rents. Of course, people, when they arrive to the country, don't buy, they rent. And so the rental crisis is uh, going to continue to be a, I guess, thorn in the side of politicians for the next few years at least. We just simply can't increase production and solve the rental crisis in two weeks. It's going to take five years. And really, uh, what politicians don't like is the conversation around mean reversion, basically the idea that rents did not go up for 10 years because we were in a deflationary money cycle. Now we're in an inflationary money cycle, rents are going up. And of course, um, instead of going up over a seven or eight year period, uh, a little bit, per year, it's all sort of happened over a, a one to two year period. And of course, this smashes really the working poor and uh, puts a lot of, uh, I guess, conversation pieces back at investors. Investors obviously uh, get negative be- gearing benefits from the ATO for having property investments. Um, you know, they are considered, you know, in some respects part of the problem by certain parts of society the counter argument of course is property investors really have a big job ahead of them to buy properties to house the many tenants who don't have a home so again there is this sort of symbiotic relationship but really when it comes to ending up in a place where where positive cash flow the first rule is the 30 40 rule 40% of society spend more than 30% of their income on uh, housing. Uh, It's a large cost to their family household structure. And really you're starting to see tenant stress when people get to about 35% of their income going uh, in and out the door, basically to pay for a roof over their head. And of course, Uh, Government is obviously concerned with that end of the market, just making sure that everyone's got a roof over their head, which is fair enough. And uh, I would imagine they'll uh, keep uh, pressing the point that uh, maybe some legislation might just slow up the uh, rate of growth when it comes to rents. It is what it is. Uh, Australia is not a... Middle class country anymore. Uh, we really have 40% of society which are battlers, which are getting by, or perhaps golden oldies with no money. Um, and so that end of the market, even the golden oldies with no money, still renting, you know, they, they are spending more than what they have on rent. And so for the most part, I tend to steer clear of that end of the market. It's not a fun end of the market. When your tenant is broke and can't pay rent because uh, something's come into their world, it's just going to have a flow-on effect to you. Today, though, there are some great tenants out there from people who love lifestyle. They'll choose a lifestyle-orientated suburb to rent a better life, uh, and they're high-income earners. There are basically MetroTechs who are professionals with high income earners. Uh, they love really living around culture. You've got wealthy families today, um, and both young and middle aged families living really the above average income lifestyle. And of course, you've got really those high achiever Australians, young, educated. Uh, families that live in both the outer suburbs, middle suburbs and inner suburbs that really can afford to spend money on rent and uh, eventually will no doubt upgrade into um, their own home. So there are some good demographic profiles in Australia and then there are tough demographic profiles. There is getting by, young parents, um, they, they... basically a bargain hunters because they just kind of keep up with the cost of living you know for for their world it's like what can we give up um what uh you know yeah we'll 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 rent the property with the leaky roof because um you know we can't afford to to basically complain uh you've got the the Aussie-born, last, struggling young family, single mums, you know, single fathers, um, you know, basically pretty close to welfare kind of space. And, uh, again, like, it is what it is. Let's just – let's be honest about it. That's Australia. And we've got um, some really sharp people and we've got, um, you know, some people struggling – Inside of the space. Now, the federal government sort of came up with some ideas through their recent budget to try and work with the uh, 30 40 end of the market. Remember, 40% of society spends way too much on housing, and the government is trying their best to come up with solutions to fix the housing shortage and uh, really, um, you know, the Commonwealth Rental Assistance Program is designed to top up people's rents. So you've got, um, you know, the idea of of uh, the Australian government trying to, you know, even come up with some uh, national housing, uh, you know, uh, development. You've got all sorts of things happening. And really, when I examine the federal budget from giving benefits to build to rent, um, better depreciation, to expanding the eligibility of the first homeowner grant, to uh, you doing some economic reforms around infrastructure. And uh, really, it's all about the the people at the bottom of the market and that's fair enough as well people need roofs over their head people need tenure people need a place to live but the reason i talk uh, about this section of the market the have not tenant section half a week away from broke let's not go there because if they can't afford to rent today why would the rent you're charging them today double over the next 10 15 20 years the simple answer is it won't Let's say by way of example that uh, Battler is paying $400 a week in rent uh, and struggling, it's 35% of the income today. How are they going to pay $800 a week? Rent. It's not going to happen. So let's just hit that one on the head. I think we can give that a tick. Uh, now we know that. Now we're actually embracing that conversation. Where are the have tenants? Where are the people who are... All about lifestyle, all about uh, profession, all about you know having a great family and high achieving. This is the conversation we need to have. And today, I'll give you the places they are, so you can buy real estate investments in those places. Now, really, our job as a property investor today is to go through a journey. And uh, you know, I guess if you aren't familiar with the long-term cash rate here in Australia and a normal sort of interest rate. It's typically around uh, 4% cash rate and around 6.5% long-term interest rate. So where we are today is very normal. Um, We are in a normal place. This is what it should be. This is really the average kind of point, the midpoint of what money should cost. It's got a lot more expensive in the past. It's got a lot cheaper in the past. Now, obviously, our job as a property investor is to choose an asset which is going to grow. It's a simple equation. Will the real estate go up in value? Will the rents go up in value? Now, today, if we went out and bought a property, we might have to be negative cash flow. Why? Because interest rates are sitting, if you were to borrow money off the bank, at sort of 6.5%. And if you were to get a, say, 4.5% yield, On your investment, you basically need to fork out some money out of your back pocket. Now, you can lessen the burden by using some tax benefits, depreciation. Uh, If you have a more modern property, you'll get more depreciation. It's kind of as simple as that. So you can lessen the burden on your back pocket. But of course, if you go too negative and you buy a 2% uh, yield, you're going to have to top up the balance. And of course, that's going to be a lot coming out of your back pocket. So, if we get the mathematics right and we choose the right asset, we can go from negative cash flow and eventually end up positive cash flow. There are two points in the middle. We go from negative. Uh, if we can get the right tenants, we can put the rents up. Or if the interest rates drop, we'll start to get to what is known as the neutral geared or break-even point. Now, the break-even point, if you are going to go and buy a property today, could take anywhere from two to five years. It's as simple as that. And typically, what happens is because property investors need to go through a break-even point, quite often when you're first offered a home loan, uh, as an investment loan, you might get offered a five-year interest-only period. That's really to help your investment go from negative cash flow to basically a break-even point. And so it's really important that you use that period of your time to to make sure you've bought the right asset and, of course, push those rents up. Now there is a point after the neutral break-even point known as positive gearing. Positive gearing is not positive cash flow. There is a difference. Positive gearing is basically a point where your asset plus your tax deductions equates to a surplus of income. So your rent and tax deductions um, basically equalize to a surplus of income. You might uh, basically still be neutral or negative, out of your back pocket to keep the property afloat. But once you do your tax return, you claim that money back and you get some money in your back pocket, so to speak. Then the final step is positive cash flow. Positive cash flow is when your real estate is paying you. You basically don't even need a tax deduction. The rent is so high that it is producing income superior to your costs, and superior to your mortgage rate. Obviously, if you end up debt-free, uh, you will be positive cash flow on your asset. Obviously, for a property investor, there is a cost to borrow money. Now, just by way of teaching, I will uh, you know, explain how it kind of works. There is the 3% rule and the 2% rule. Really, uh, the best way to understand it, if you want pure positive cash flow, you need to be 3% above the mortgage rate. So today, let's say you were borrowing money at 6%, your gross yield would be 9%, assuming you bought and borrowed 100% of the asset's value. You used equity uh, to buy the property. So, uh, 9% will throw out cash flow on a uh, 6% interest rate market. Now, here you can see what's going on. How are we going to get our rents to a 9% yield? This is a big question. Uh, Are we just going to be relying on interest rates coming down in value? What if they go uh, stay at the same price or go up in value? This is the point. This is the point why over our asset accumulation period, we want to choose assets that end up positive cash flow. I'll uh, show you how we're going to do that. But uh, if we were to look at positive geared, it's kind of the 2% rule. You know, if we were a 6% uh, interest rate, we might look at a 8% return. If we're neutral, we're roughly 6% and we're basically Yielding six percent. We're borrowing money at six percent, we're yielding six percent, six to seven percent. And then if we're negatively geared, we're borrowing money at six percent, and probably uh you know, buying a property which throws out a four, four and a half percent return, something like that, maybe more. Um, but that's that's the model. So positive cash flow, uh six percent interest rate, nine percent gross yield, positively geared, six percent interest rate. 7 to 8% gross yield. Neutrally geared, 6% interest rate, 6% gross yield. Negatively geared, 6% interest rate. And then really anything less than that, say around 4.5%, it's negatively geared. Now, again, uh, to write, buy the right real estate, you probably want to be negatively geared. Uh, and again, that is really just the idea of, of the capitalization rate. The lower the yield, usually the better the asset. It's kind of how it works. And so if we can choose something which is going to gentrify as a property, as an investment, and uh, our yield is uh, still good enough for us to use it, so we're not burning huge amounts of money out of our back pocket, we may want to start uh, basically... A little bit negatively geared, not a lot negatively geared, but a little bit negatively geared. And so that means we're probably looking at a yield of around four, four and a half to 5%. Now, again, if we use Rule 72, we uh, want a compounding growth rate on our yield and our rent. And that compounding growth rate I chase is a 5% growth rate on rent, 5%. So if your rent is growing at 5% per annum, and it won't be as linear as that, but using the conversation of uh, if we could get a 5% Uplift on our rent every year for the next 15 years, our rents will double. We'll take a $400 a week rent and it will become an $800 a week rent. This is very, very important information because uh, if we get a lower rate of growth than that and it's more linked to, for example, the wage rate of growth, which is around 2%, It's going to take 35 years for our real estate to actually double in rental value. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have 35 years to watch my rents double in value. I'm not sitting around for that. I'm going to chase a higher rate of rental growth to achieve what I want in this world, and that is retiring with those positive cash flow uh, uh, incomes coming into my portfolio. So, again, the rate of growth is really, really important in this conversation because uh, you will um, ultimately be the beneficiary of the rate of growth. So, I want to explain two properties that were purchased in 2010. Yes, in 2010, something happened. Two people bought properties. Two people that don't know each other. One of those peoples was me. And one was a client of mine who wasn't a client of mine in 2010. So in 2010, I bought a property and at the time it had an affluent score of around 7 out of 10. little bit of time before it was going to gentrify to become a much better place. But not bad. A score of 7 out of 10. When I bought the property based on the purchase price, I got a 4.5% return, a gross return of 4.5%. When I bought the property, the property which I paid $830,000, I was getting a $700 per week rent. Today, 13 years later, the rent is is $1,275 per week. Over the course of 13 years, there has been a 5% compounding capital uh, rental growth rate. Not capital growth rate, rental growth rate. This has taken the rent from 700 to 1275 per week. When I bought the property, the rent was 36400 Today, the rent is 66300 The rental spread is 29900 In terms of cash flow, my cash flow is improving on this asset. When you take into consideration the cost of property expenses also going up, the rate of growth of my property is outperforming inflation. Inflation, typically about 25 to 3%. Obviously, what that means is your uh, strata fees, your council rates, your insurance um, goes up every year. So if your rents aren't improving every year and you've got a lower rate of rental growth, your costs catch up to you. Now, one of the team, my teammates at my work, Vicky Hines. Shout out, Vicky. She's a legend, um, absolute guru, property investor herself. She uh, is working with a client. The client who she's working with and coaching, basically bought a property uh, in 2010. We didn't know the client at that point in time, and the property they chose, they chose a property which had a 5.7% yield and a rent of $370 per week. 13 years later, that rent has gone from $370 per week to $450 per week. The starting yield of 5.7% is now a yield of 7% against 100% borrowings. Now, uh, if we analyze over the last 13 years, the starting rent started at nineteen thousand two hundred and forty. dollars today is 23400 in real terms with the cost of expenses increasing such as insurance uh, at the nominal cpi rate which is about 2.5 to 3% the cash flow is going backwards because this rental property has only grown at an annualized growth rate of 1.64% in fact it will take 42 years for this real estate to double in value to go from $370 per week in rent to 720 $740 a week in rent. It'll take 42 years. It's already been 13. Uh, so it's a long time, a long time to see the real estate rents double in value. I don't know. Do you have 42 years? Who's got 42 years to watch their rents double in value? So Again, this is the empower of the rate of growth of real estate. Now, obviously, when the person who Vicky is coaching bought this property, they were probably attracted by the 5.7% yield, very strong yield day one. Uh, however, it's actually not how you start in economics, it's how you finish. We can see the current yield today, 7%. If we go back to my property... I got a starting yield of 4.5%. And today, my current yield is basically 8%. However, along the way, I've also debt reduced. And now my actual cash flow and uh, overall yield against debt is 10.5%. So I'm positive cash flow on that property. Now, again, if we go back to the battlers versus the lifestylers, this property that the client bought was in a very low socioeconomic area and really the income was associated with lower socioeconomics, so fundamentally less ability for rents to grow. If we look where I bought, today the affluent score is a 9. It gentrified over that 13 years. Um, and that obviously tells us that those lifestylers are living in that suburb And they've just got extra money to pay on rent. So the big lesson and takeaway here is we want growing rents because also our cost base also will increase as we own real estate, our operating operating expense. So we want a good ratio of operating expenses to rent collected. And of course, we need those growing rents. Otherwise, those operating expenses come and uh, get us and, uh, you know, turn us into, um, you know, little, uh, you know, too much money coming out of the back pocket. So second lesson, it's the rate of growth that is the most important factor in real estate, the rate of growth. I started with a lower yield, but I got a higher rate of growth and a better result. It's just the way it's worked and so real estate like any asset class and of course charlie munger uses the uh famous line you know assets tend to be a voting machine and or a weighing machine and uh you know quite often people vote for the better yield but what carries more weight is the rate of growth what i chose was a weighing machine what that particular client uh chose and uh You know, they've they've gone on to become really successful property investors. Shout out to you guys. Thank you for letting us use this as an example. Um, But, you know, at the beginning, they chose that as a voting machine based on its startup yield. And uh, what has proven to be more worthwhile is definitely buying the waiting machine over the voting machine. So what about going out and buying real estate, positive cash flow from day one. Remember, today you could go out and borrow money at 6% and find a rental return of 9%. Well, of course, that is possible. And uh, again, generally, the higher the yield, the lower the price of the property. And uh, really, it has not gone through what is known as yield compression. As prices go up, yields compress. And really, the value of the best real estate in Australia has a 2% yield. That's the way it works. Uh, what we're trying to do is perhaps buy a 4, four and a half, five 5% yield and watch that compress down to a 2% yield um, against the rise of growth of our real estate. That's the model that we're looking to do, but buy the better real estate. But I'll give you a quick sort of little history lesson. Uh, you know, back in the early 2000s, there was a mining boom um, and Australians discovered strange little mining towns in the middle of nowhere that were basically, uh, you know, 3,000 strong communities in uh, basically faraway places. And what we discovered was there was huge rental returns and cheap properties because there had never been capital growth. And uh, fundamentally, (coughs) excuse me, um, the history uh, between mining boom one and mining boom two between 2000 and 2011 was a lot of property investors went uh, bananas in strange little places. And really they did that to buy real estate for positive cash flow. Rather than waiting, which is what I'm referring to at the moment, where we can wait 15 years and go from a, a, a negative cash flow position to a positive cash flow position and do that in a A-grade suburb, a lot of people wanted to cheat the system, me included, and go and get a 10% return from day one. Uh, and of course, uh, this did not work out well. It certainly didn't work out well for me. Uh, I've got the lashes on the back from buying some strange properties in some strange places back then. And, uh, you know, I was buying properties for myself in Port Hedland and and Carrethra uh, and some wacky places, I tell you. Um, and, you know, when I look back on, on what I was doing, I was trying to replace my income from day one using uh, basically – broken properties properties which were cheap uh, because they'd never grown in value not because the rents were high so you can still do this today like it's not um rocket science and it's and it's not some mystical wow opportunity there are plenty of places today around australia where you can go into a dying rural town center a dying country town or a volatile mining town buy a property and get a high rent. It's like, it's, it's that daft. It's still possible. And uh, again, you are obviously connected to the volatility of what that looks like. Um, You know, will the mine shut down? Will old people basically not be replaced by younger people in young country towns? This is the volatility. This is your financial legacy at stake. So my advice is don't do it. I'll give you an explanation of a property I bought. Uh, I bought it in 2006 for $140,000. It had a rent at the time I bought it for $300 per week. It's basically around 11% gross yield. Now, if I put on Facebook today, oh, 11% gross yield, everyone would be cheering me. Oh, you're a legend, man. 11% gross yield, that's great. You don't have to uh, put any money into the property um, and you're going to get income from the property. Well, all fun and games uh this is the result of the asset uh, 17 years later. Well, in fact, in 2016, 10 years after buying that property in 2006, I actually sold the property for $132,000, obviously losing $8,000 in actual uh, contract uh, loss. Today, using a logic valuation, the estimated value of the property is $165,000. Remember, uh, if you can imagine, uh, the basically property which I bought was $140,000. Today, 17 years later, it's worth $165,000. It's a $25,000 uplift in 17 years to get basically... Uh, some cash flow from a property. And of course, that $300 a week in rent is still $300 a week in rent, um, which is, you know, a good amount in rent, but it's never, ever, ever grown. And so the result is absolutely terrible because capital growth will make you wealthier than the rent you can collect. Now, if I go back to the property which went from $700 a week to $1,275 a week with a 5% uh, annual uh, rental growth uh, rate of growth increase. Uh, If I look at the new uplift of that property's value, that property's gone from $830,000 to today being worth at 2050000 That's an uplift of $1,220,000. Today, that property is positive cash flow. So what I've done is I've used a higher rate of rental growth to end up positive cash flow, but make a huge amount of capital growth along the way. In fact, when I combined the compound annual growth rate of the rent and the compound annual growth rate of the asset. The asset grew at 7.88% over 13 years per annum. The rent grew at 5.12% per annum. Uh, The combined compound annual growth rate is 13%. So, Here you can see how to get to positive cash flow. We want good assets, good location, good incomes, and uh, let some gentrification unfold. And we can take a rent of 700, get it to 1275. We can take a property that's worth 830 and get it to two million and fifty thousand. Capital growth will make you far wealthier than the rent you can collect. So, Here's the question that I get a lot. How can we identify the 5% growth rates that lead to achieving positive cash flow over the 15 years while also generating growth for genuine wealth accumulation? Great question. I'm going to give you the answer. But firstly, cash flow non-negotiables. These are the things we need to stick by. If we're not going to stick by this, I can't help you. I'm going to give them to you. We want assets where the long-term trend is that demand is going to outstrip supply. That's the first thing we need. Second thing we need is pie economics. Where is the main centers for jobs, population improvement, infrastructure improvement, and employment improvement? They're not going to be in the strange little mining town or dying country town. It's just not going to happen. Where will they be? Well, uh, I tend to look in our major top 10 Australian cities where the population is. That's where it's going to be. Remember the, the principle that I taught you about, the 40-30 rule, wealth is unequally, unequally distributed in Australia. So we really want tenants that can afford their rents to double. This is what we're looking for, higher incomes. And of course, um, You know, the idea of affluence is an important part of the puzzle. Uh, We don't want that broke end of town. And obviously, we want demand for simply just better places and better properties. It's human nature to want better properties. Better properties actually carry better rent. Um, And if we're going to buy, you know, something half uh, half, half a year from falling down, How is anyone going to pay you more money for that? Like you need a nice piece of real estate which travels through time uh, that is seen nice now but also nice 15 years from now for those rents to double. If your real estate is going to diminish in look, appeal and value over the next 15 years, someone's not going to pay you more rent for it. It's logical to understand that. And obviously, we want um, some drivers of appeal. Things like schools, culture, transport, shops, parks, beaches. All of these things are what we're looking for. But in my point of, in my opinion, and the best way to do this. Remember, we're trying to buy a four and a half, five percent gross return today. Accumulate assets and watch them go to a ten percent gross return. Uh I think the most important thing when it comes to what that looks like is really the emerging winners in real estate investment are going to follow the money trail. Where is the money? Let's follow the trail. Now, I want to just share with you some theories today as well, which I think are very, very important theories to understand how to go from negative cash flow to positive cash flow and have the right assets to get you through that uh, that journey. Today, I want to do rent gap theory, the rent curve theory, and intrinsic value theory. I want to share them with you because I think they're the most important theories when it comes to growing your rents. Now, obviously, rent gap theory is something I've covered off a lot on this podcast, so I will simply just touch on it. But ultimately, today, Australians spend a percentage of their income on housing, they spend a percentage of their income on clothing, transportation, education, medical, food and BEV, they spend a percentage of their income on other services. Our job is to win the income race, we want the lion's share of income from a household's income coming to housing. That's our product. We're in the product of housing. That's what we do as property investors. We're competing with food and beverage. We may not realize it. We're we're competing with recreation. Uh, We may not realize it. We're competing with transportation. So there's a few clues right there that if we buy housing and we offer transportation or we offer food and brev or we offer recreation, well, all of a sudden, perhaps we can just absorb more actual income coming our way because people don't have to spend as much elsewhere. But again, going back to the rental affordability index, obviously it's considered unaffordable if people are paying over 30% of their income on rent. Now, again, we just simply don't want to go near those tenants in those marketplaces. When it comes to the idea of basically income distribution, here in Australia, there is kind of five quartiles. You've got people earning in the first quartile above 280002 quartile $135,000, 3rd quartile 88000 and then you've got the 30-40 uh, section of the market, basically 40% of society that spends 30% of their income on housing, and they're earning really below uh, that sort of $55,000 mark. So if you can imagine, if we can find incomes in society whereby people are earning $280,000, let's multiply by that by 30%, which is considered basically the benchmark of what people should pay at a maximum level on rent. Well, we can find tenants that can spend $84,000 a year on rent up to $1,600 per week. Uh, Does that seem like a good idea to replacing your income? I think it does. And of course, uh, really, as long as we're finding really, um, you know, incomes above sort of $85,000 and above, we're going to get a good dollar figure in rent coming into our portfolio, into our rental bucket, if you like. Now, of course, some suburbs are simply undervalued when it comes to rent. And this is where rent gap theory comes into play. You might buy a property, it might have a 4% yield today, but really it should be yielding a lot higher than that. And when you look at basically the income of a neighbourhood, you might see an income gap where really the tenants should be paying more rent. Now, If we looked at a property's rent today versus, say, a rent gap, let's say a property is running at $400 per week in a neighbourhood, which represents a 4% return, but the household income allows for basically more uh, rent to be paid, up to 30% of the uh, area. Well, that rent could go from $400 to $715 per week in, in rent, That's a $350 per week rent gap based on if you took the ABS data of uh, household income versus the medium rent paid for a certain dwelling type. So the idea of also finding areas where the rents are going to improve is obviously going to help you on your journey to going from uh, basically – Negative cash flow to positive cash flow. And you can use rent gap theory to consider that as well. The next thing I think you need to consider when it comes to the idea of basically doubling your rents over a 15 year period is the idea of intrinsic value. Now, real estate has intrinsic value, it's basically uh, sectioned off into the lifetime cash flow of the property. Uh, as you can see, the property I'm showing you, there's really good lifetime cash flow because of the rate of growth, the lifetime appeal of the property. Um, if I'm going to have to spend lots of money to play with my appeal, uh, that's going to meddle with my overall return and cash flow. And uh, in real estate, there are kind of three costs which you really don't want, which is your property becomes dysfunctional; it's not functional anymore. Uh, it's not physically looking good and it's not economically capable of producing. So really the idea of intrinsic value is you've got a property which is going to go uh, on a journey and uh, offer you lifetime cash flow without having the cost of functional obsolence, economic obsolence, or physical obsolence. Obviously, You can improve intrinsic value by a higher and better use by improving things. But if you have a huge cost of repair on your asset and uh, it's just a money pit and it's absorbing money and not really adding much value to your real estate, then you're suffering basically economic obsolence. And by way of example, let's say you had to do $150,000 worth of renovation, um, which were focused on really basically replacing things, and you're only going to get an extra $5,000 a year in rent. Well, that's going to take you 30 years to get your money back. And so economically, it's not a good decision. And so what we want if we're going to do this basically from negative to positive is really we don't want to get involved in uh, restoring, repairing, losing money on properties which constantly uh, need a new set of taps or the toilet keeps on leaking. Or So my advice, if, if you want appeal in 15 years' time, is to buy the right property, either renovate it now and make sure it's right for 15 years time, or buy modern and, it, and it'll and probably be right in 15 years time if you buy the right type of modern, which is a nice property, not something which is, you know, stapled together. So again, this is, this is the concept. We've got to realise that for someone to pay us double in rent 15 years from now, the asset needs to also do part of that puzzle and the final theory is really land rent theory and and really this one's as simple as it as it's always been rents yield more based on their distance to employment and again i think you know don't ever uh turn your back on that where the jobs are is where the rents are and really between that uh and what I've taught you already, we're ready to, to look at some factors which might also project some extra rate of growth on your rents. So remember, no obsolescence cost. We don't want to be in, own an obsolete property. No one's going to pay more rent for that in 15 years' time. We obviously want good fundamentals. If we can find a rent gap, that's fine because it's the rate of growth, not the starting yield, which is the most important factor to double our rents. Uh, If we are going to buy an investment, we want to be around the jobs. We want to avoid the 30-40 rule, which is 40% of society spends, doesn't have any money in the bank, basically. Uh, And of course, it's the rate of growth that determines how we finish, not the starting yield as to how we start. And so it's a very important concept. So let's go on the journey. What would I be looking for when it comes to modern day cash flow properties? And by modern day, I mean not properties in mining town, uh, not the property I bought for one hundred and forty thousand dollars and sold for one thirty two, which is today worth one sixty five. I mean, who wants that result in their life? What a waste of life! And when I sort of look at, look back at that, that real estate, it's obviously taught me valuable lesson, but geez, I didn't need to go through it. I could have worked this out earlier. And so, uh, you don't have to work it out yourself. You don't have to make the mistake. That's the brilliant thing about podcasts. You can listen to people who've made the mistakes for you. Uh, Hey, I've made the mistake. So, um, yeah, use my lesson, if you like, and it, that's really my job. A big part of my job is simply sharing information so others don't make the mistakes I've made. Uh, you know, may not agree with all of my principles, all of my theories, all of my economics, but hey, at least I'm sharing, you know, what my experiences are, and, and certainly our experiences form our beliefs, and, and really, you know, take the good bits of what you like, consider what I do, a bit of a briefing, um, and uh, use the good bits. Throw out the bits you don't like. But uh, today I want to go through some cash flow factors around people, property, and place, so you can make sure that you're going to get rents that double in value. That's the name of the game. Now, remember, inside of our cities, we have very mature places which at a world level, uh, you know, have have proven... That rents can go a certain level and certain distance. So today, if you're in Manhattan, New York, the you know the rents are extreme. Tokyo, uh, you know the rents are extreme. London, the rents are extreme. Sydney, the rents are extreme. And uh, I say that because I think if you're also considering real estate in more maturing markets, your places like Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, you can actually use what's happened in Sydney and sort of follow the trail that Sydney has left and do what has been achieved in Sydney, but do it in Brisbane or Melbourne or Perth or you could go to a European maturing city, go to Berlin and give it a go. I don't think really immature cities actually have the capacity to see a huge rental doubling. I don't know if this is going to work in downtown Rockhampton. I may be wrong. Um, But I would probably do this in maturing cities. The reason is mature cities like Sydney and London and New York, the price is bolted, right? So you're buying a yield of 2.5%. But you can still go to Brisbane and and Melbourne and get a 4.5% return and and Perth a 5% return. So... Obviously, if we want to go from four and a half to nine percent, or five percent to ten percent, um, you know, it's it's a journey. Um, if we're going to go from two to ten, that's that's a long way to go. So too far. So the yield has compressed, and of course, prices have risen in Sydney, whereas um, other cities. Compared to a mature city as Sydney, still some value left in those areas. So the first factor I would look for, and these are all independent factors. They're just the way it works, is high income urban places, inner urban places, double income no kid areas. Um, you know the laptop line, places where millennials hang out, places where those high income loner livers live out. Uh, dink couples. These are the areas where you know you're typically close to the CBD, and uh, there's full of life, full of infrastructure, full of amenity, and uh, you know the right property in the right place in the right street. It's just going to double in rental value, and uh, nothing can change my mind about that. I've had that happen to me. And uh, I'm sure it'll happen to you. The beauty of owning real estate for a very long time now, as a portfolio owner, I can look back and reminisce about how things have unfolded and see patterns to share with you. And really, the first pattern of real estate that I personally own is real estate, which is in those areas where you've got hot urban local economics and people who just want to live that urban lifestyle the second really playbook if you ask me when it comes to people place and product is blue space our cities have beaches our cities have lakes our cities have rivers Um, you know the right property next to blue space is going to carry with it a huge huge return um, and people simply consider blue spaces, there's not enough of it going around in efficient urban areas and as such will pay big rents to ultimately live in those places. The third thing, you know, you could look for is affluence. Affluence is, again, a big metric of um, how incomes are distributed around uh, society. Obviously, you can use things like, Um, micro burbs to give you an affluence rating all that's really trying to tell us is there's more people with more money in a suburb than less people with no money in a suburb and of course if we get those affluent um, houses and and units and townhomes um, there's usually a persistently missing level of extra stock coming to those areas and so if you went to sort of those middle ring suburbs and you focus on affluence you're absolutely going to see your rents uh, over a period of time get a rate of growth good enough to go from you buying a property today which is negative cash flow ending up in positive cash flow probably for me uh you know i love place economies you know i've said this many times on this podcast there are 300 suburbs in sydney there's probably 10 places you know place suburbs are brand areas. They're the areas the coolest kids want to hang out in. You know, in Sydney, where I'm from, Bondi is the number one brand. Uh, If you've got a property down in Bondi and you bought it at the right time of the cycle, you would probably be positive cash flow right now without question. Uh, How do we do that elsewhere? Well, we go find a brand suburb in a less mature market than Sydney, where the prices are half the price, and we buy in those neighborhoods, what do we do? We get a higher rate of growth. Now, uh, if I analyze a property I own in a brand suburb in Melbourne, the suburb is Collingwood. It is basically one of the places to be in inner Melbourne. Uh, If I look at the property I own, Um, I currently get $750 per week in rent. It's $39,000 a year in rent, which is great. Uh, When I connect the 30% of income to the income brackets of society, I can see that I sit in the second income bracket from the top where the tenant, if they're paying $39,000 a year in rent, uh, $39,000 a year in rent, is, uh, you know, connected to that second bracket of people earning over $135,000 a year um, in income. But I know my tenant, uh, because of her, um, you know, application, that when she rented the property, I know she earns actually a lot more than that. So the beautiful thing is, I know uh, when the market starts to improve, in rental value, I can pass on a uh, rent um, increase to that particular tenant. Now, if I look at really where things are at, that tenant's under a two-year lease at the moment with about six months to go. During that two-year lease though, rents have gone up. We're going through a rental crisis at the moment. The current rent for the same property, uh, something similar, same street, is now $900 per week. So, of course, uh, when the lease is up, the rent is going to go up to $900 per week in rent. And uh, the reason that can unfold, and the reason probably there won't even be more than a uh, letter being sent to the tenant, the tenant going, oh, yeah, okay, no worries, uh, is that their incomes can afford it, and the brand suburb – obviously is hotly in demand so if you don't want it someone else will take it the next uh i guess concept when it comes to sort of pushing your income profile out of real estate and uh ending up in a place where you've either got the right people in your property you've got the right property to to do what it needs to do or your property's in the right place when it comes to your uh your momentum from a rental perspective is really the idea that you can also um, change the use of your cash flow. You know, you could do things and buy a property, for example, that has a granny flat or you could buy a property where you could short stay the property using strategies like Airbnb or you could buy a property which is attractive to the executive rental market. Um, who come to Australia and need a six- or 12-month lease and pay big rent. I mean, one thing I do with one of my properties, which is in the right place to attract the right people, is I just put a $10,000 furniture package in the apartment and uh, basically I've taken the rent from $400 to $540 per week Uh, That's a 72% yield on the furniture. And again, like these are some of the ways to keep you in the game whilst that marketplace has a natural upswing of rental growth. So uh, remember, you can influence the people, you can influence the place and you can influence the property struggling to get that out wasn't i uh one way to influence people is to own a property in a place where you offer really a live work play principle uh people can do everything from the area the location or even the building and that's where again like if you've got the right property um even today, there's a concept known as the hotelification of life and real estate. A lot of people today want a minimalistic life. They want to live in a building with a gym, a pool, um, uh, car share, um, its own basically co-work environment. And really, rather than spending money on doing co-work, gym, pool, and a car, uh, they spend it on rent. And so again, you get this accelerated rent effect. Uh, walk score is another way to consider your rental performance growing and doubling in value. Now, I recently did a whole podcast on walk score. Um, so I am probably shouldn't redo it here because it just aired like four episodes ago or five episodes ago or something like that. So go back and listen to walk score, walkable properties and how they can improve your rents. Absolutely, rents improve if you minimise the amount of movement people have to deal with on a daily basis. Uh, The next one is really design. Design absolutely matters. Again, if you've got the right property, you're in the right community, if it's this design-led concept, your rents will double. Remember, you are asking someone to pay into the future double the rent than what they're paying today. So the asset better be designed well, it better be functional, it better have some good behaviors, and it better reflect that it can extrapolate double the rent in 15 years' time. Uh, the next factor I would look for, again, links to the idea of employment. And, uh, you know, CBDs obviously are one. Way to consider that airports. Another, uh, what's kind of AI proof and offshore proof is really medical, um, education and medical. Our big universities and hospitals. I know here in Sydney we've got the world's uh, or the southern hemisphere's biggest hospital being a, being Westmead, and you know a pretty you know basic two bedroom apartment could rent for over seven hundred dollars per week next to the hospital. Why? You know hospital workers need to ultimately live quite close by to the hospital, and so uh, it's a major, major job center. And it is the number one growing industry inside of Australia, uh, it's got the most jobs on offer. And so, naturally, you're going to get this kind of well, there's only so many properties near the hospital effect, and you'll get that sort of rental performance grow particularly if uh those incomes and those properties can be connected to the higher end of medical uh for me as well i think some factors which are important is just the idea of transport Uh, mobility is a big conversation about how people live today of course there has been some digitalization of how people live where people live but ultimately You know, if you were to look at the pyramid of movement, um, you know, today people will live two hours from Sydney, um, you know, in a small regional place, that's great. Um, Is there that competitive tension in that area for rents to double? Um, Ultimately, you know, I think there is huge rents If people are using light transport options, things like Uber, ferry, you know, light bus, um, you know, car share, ride share, um, you know, trams, things like that. Um, I think real estate around those places just does really, really well. And of course, it leads us to the conversation of the 20 minute neighborhood. If everything's in your neighborhood, you don't have to leave and you can work from home. I mean, these are some of the principles, I think, that will also push rental growth. But again, it's got to have the right local communities. No one wants to work from home in an area that doesn't even have a coffee shop. But if you've got good local everything, community first, um, and you've got the right property in a big urban city like a Melbourne or a Brisbane or a Perth or something, man, your, your rents can double. And you can buy a good yield today and watch that rent double, and you can go from negative cash flow to positive cash flow. It's happened to me. It can happen to you. And finally, I think really uh, the green economy will what will help rents double. Uh, buying next to a park, next to a, a bushland, you know, a bit of urban tree change. I mean, people pay big money for that. Uh, certainly, from a a buying point of view and do it from a rental point of view as well. If you've got that little bit of lifestyle factor that really just starts to, you know, uh, stand out from the crowd, you're absolutely going to, um, without question, see your rents double. You know, we want these kind of like, I guess, factual drivers of appeal, things like schools, jobs, transport, culture, shops, parks, beaches. Simple as that, really. And uh, if you can put them together and you've got the right asset and you've got an asset which is going to stand the test of time and the time that is the test is around 15 years, then there's no reason if particularly you're connected to a level of decent affluence and decent level of, you know, thinking and, uh, you know... and, and connection, then you're going to watch your real estate move. And again, just remember, Australia is divided. And if we were to st- create a stereotype, we've got our lifestylists. They'll pay big money to live by the urban beach. We've got our metro techs. They are well-educated, artistic. They'll pay big money to live in an, in an urban area. We've got our Basically, above average families that will pay big, big money to uh, form a nucleus of their family in a good uh, middle class to upper middle class, uh, you know, reasonably affluent community. We've got our high achievers, these are educated people, they are working full time. They want to get ahead, they want to achieve, they will put themselves in a position to rent a better lifestyle, uh, to achieve that and uh, meet, you know, intelligent people. On the flip side of that, we've got people getting by, we've got golden oldies who are broke and we've got battlers. And uh, we just really want to separate ourselves from that section of the market so that we can absolutely own the right property, rent it to the right people. And if we do that in the right place, we're not only going to get rental growth, we will get that capital growth as well. Remember, capital growth will make you wealthier uh, than you know asking an extra $20 a week in rent. We want our capital values to improve. But it is really, really handy to watch your capital values improve and see a huge amount of rental growth along the journey hey i hope that was helpful i'll catch you on the next episode so we talk more real estate thanks for tuning in to the urban property investor to never miss an episode make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on youtube and i would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family in between episodes you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.